there are plenty of people who even in this completely polarized and destructive landscape want it not to be that way and really want the good things that God has for each and every one of us. Welcome to Tales with the Sales, where we discuss stories that matter because you are living one. I'm your host, Jane DeSales. I'm a writer, poet, and storyteller. It is my pleasure to introduce you to authors as we explore how fiction impacts our lives and culture. Katie Carl is the editor-in-chief of Dappled Things magazine and the author of As Earth Without Water, a novel published by Wise Blood Books in 2021, and of Praying the Great O Antiphons, My Soul Magnifies the Lord, published by Catholic Truth Society in 2021. Her work has appeared in Windover, Vita Poetica, Bel Ombre, Across the Margin, where she won Best of Fiction in 2021, Exposition Review, where she had the Flash 405 Contest Honorable Mention, Presence, a Journal of Catholic Poetry, Evangelization and Culture, Genealogies of Modernity, and St. Louis Magazine, among others. She is a Senior Affiliate Fellow of the Program for Research on Religion and Urban Civil Society, located at the University of Pennsylvania, and is currently pursuing her MFA in Fiction at the University of St. Thomas, Houston. She was honored to be Wise Blood Books' inaugural Writer-in-Residence in 2020. Her short story collection, Fragile Objects, is forthcoming. Katie, I am so excited to have this conversation, and I figured I had better hit record because we were having all sorts of fabulous conversation before, and it wasn't getting recorded. So here we go. (laughs) Why don't you start us off with some literature? Okay. I'm going to read to you today from Henry James' Portrait of a Lady, Uh, and it's about a third of the way through. It's where he's introducing uh, Madame Merrill, who becomes a really important character in the the second two-thirds of the novel. Um, She's actually his villainess, so I really want to pay attention to how he's introducing her, um, because she's this wonderfully smooth, beautifully polished, incredibly heartless creature, Um, but his heroine, Isabel, is too good and too trusting, and above all, too experience uh, to see down to the depth of that heartlessness. As the story goes on, we learn just how deep uh, Madame Merrill's cruelty runs. Um, One of the things uh, Henry James seems to be doing by introducing her in this beautiful way is showing us the beauty of Isabel's character, that she can't see (laughs) the depravity of Madame Merrill's. And he's also reminding us, I think, that good aesthetic taste and even really pro-social habits aren't necessarily any kind of guarantee that someone has a good character. So here's Henry James. When Madame Merrill was neither writing, nor painting, nor touching the piano, she was usually employed upon wonderful tasks of rich embroidery, cushions, curtains, decorations for the chimney piece, an art in which her bold, free invention was as noted as the agility of her needle. She was never idle, for when engaged in none of the ways I've mentioned, she was either reading, she appeared to Isabel to read everything important, or walking out, or playing patience with the cards, or talking with her fellow inmates, and with all this, she had always the social quality, was never rudely absent, and yet never too seated. She laid down her pastimes as easily as she took them up. She worked and talked at the same time, and appeared to impute scant worth to anything she did. She gave away her sketches and tapestries. 
She rose from the piano or remained there, according to the convenience of her auditors, which she always unerringly divined. She was, in short, the most comfortable, profitable, amenable person to live with. If for Isabel she had a fault, it was that she was not natural, by which the girl meant not that she was either affected or pretentious, since from these vulgar vices no woman could have been more exempt, but that her nature had been too much overlaid by custom, and her angles too much rubbed away. She had become too flexible, too useful, was too ripe, and too final. She was, in a word, too perfectly the social animal that man and woman are supposed to have been intended to be, and she had rid herself of every remnant of that tonic wildness, which we may assume to have belonged even to the most amiable persons, in the ages before country house life was the fashion. Isabel found it difficult to think of her in any detachment or privacy. She existed only in her relations, direct or indirect, with her fellow mortals. One might wonder what commerce she could possibly hold with her own spirit. Of all of that, the thing that struck me was that Isabel said she was not natural. Yeah, yeah. She's that she's an artifice, right? Kind of like a Stepford wife almost. Almost, yeah. She's pure veneer. She's pure externals. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And there's nothing underneath, literally, specifically nothing underneath. And even though Isabel doesn't, she, you know, the, the paragraph goes on to say that she doesn't actually see the harm in that. Like she's, you know, judging, right? You know, she, she sees herself as being judgmental when she, you know, she makes that remark about what commerce she holds with her own spirit. And then she pulls back and says, oh, but, you know, even though someone seems superficial, that's no reason for us to think that they necessarily are. It's just that we don't see what's under. But she doesn't realize that her instinct is actually right and that there is nothing under. The other thing it smacks of to me is kind of our social media culture. Oh, sure. If this was written today, it would be such a social commentary on that. <laughs> oh my gosh, there's a there's a novel um, that I just read that I'm wild about, um, and it might not be the most appropriate for some of your audience because there's a lot of vulgarity and a lot of characters are getting up to a lot of uh, <laughs> really rough things. But um, the um, 2018 uh, Social Creature by Tara Isabella Burton, um, it takes this phrase "social creature" and just runs with it. You know, what do we do with ourselves when you know, we see ourselves as, right, precisely these appearances to be curated uh, and sort mm. of shopped around, um, you know, and offered to people, right, as a as a veneer, as if that were our life, as if that, as if that were the depth of our life, right? And obviously, that's that's a big part of what's troubling <laughs> the heroine of my novel too, right? The the sense that she's just a veneer, right? That all that anyone sees of her is this this exterior, right? Where were you at in your life when you first encountered Portrait of a Lady? Uh, so when I first read this novel, I was 20. Uh, and I remember it really vividly um, because the first thing I, you know, usually I skip the introduction, you skip the preface, right? Everyone skips these things, but um, you should not skip the preface of Portrait of a Lady. Um, it's one of the core foundational texts for modern fiction. And I remember very vividly reading it for the first time in a hotel room in Memphis on the way back home from college. I went uh, to St. Louis University to study English and philosophy. Um, and I lived in Mobile at the time, in my, um, which is where I grew up, Mobile, Alabama. And my mom and I would do these road trips up and down you know, at the beginning and end of every school year. And that sophomore year, 
was the year I had discovered Flannery O'Connor's Mystery and Manners and her habit of being. And I had just found out uh, that she was obsessed with Henry James uh, because her mentor, Carolyn Gordon, was obsessed with Henry James because Carolyn Gordon studied with Ford Maddox Ford, who, of course, knew James um, back in the day. So, um, <laughs> but I was already obsessed with Henry James uh, because of my encounter with his novella, Washington Square, the year before that, which if you just want to like have your mind blown, think about the fact that James wrote Washington Square in 1881 and published it and then went on to write and publish Portrait of a Lady in 1881, the same year. <laughs> so if you just want to be jealous <laughs> of someone's productivity, you can't do better than be jealous of Henry James. Anyway. <laughs> but you know, Henry James wasn't spending hours on social media, so it probably helped That's him. That's true. That's true. But he was going out to dinner every night with like fashionable hostesses and stuff. But so he was like very worried about this, this exterior veneer type stuff, but for different reasons. You know, I had undertaken. <laughs> I wonder how his dinner guests looked at him when they read this book and they said, hey, is this about me? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You, you really have to wonder because he was such a man about town, right? But yet he was putting all of this into his fiction too. So you have to wonder if he was making some people mad at the same time as others were so charmed, right? <laughs> well, and I've never thought about that. Like, uh, I really enjoyed Jane Austen, but you look at, you know, her commentary of her times is not a particularly rosy image no, either. She's, and she's very and acerbic. <laughs> she's very <laughs> sharp. <laughs> and so you wonder how these people, like how they were taken in their own society within their times. Right. No, absolutely. No, that's a really good point. Another... James Novella that I just read for the first time, although I've been, you know, trying to read as much as I can by him since, you know, I was 20, which is a while. I'm not going to say how long. <laughs> is uh, The Reverberator, right? Which um, is extremely timely because it's talking about this, uh, you know, tabloid newspaper being run by this, this guy who says, you know, the people aren't going to have privacy anymore. They don't need privacy. What they need is to, you know, to tell us all their stories and we're going to get them to do it, do it themselves. So we're going to get them to give us our story, you know, their own stories so that we have less and less work to do, right? That's essentially what's happening with, with social media, right? You know, it, essentially exactly the same thing. But the people who have a different attitude to that, James sort of does a satire of in this in this novella. But I wonder, you know, if he doesn't end up satirizing everyone involved, right? Both those who are sort of, you know, shrinking away from it at the same time as they're behaving in scandalous manners that they don't want anyone to know about, right? Um, you know, and the people who are, you know, cheerfully profiting off that scandal at the same time as that's, you know, ruining their own souls, right? Anyway, I think um, to come back to Portrait of a Lady, um, I think if you're 20 and you're female and you have a lot more book intelligence than you have experience of life, all of which was true of me at one point, then you really do need uh, the story of Isabel Archer as a cautionary tale, if nothing else. Um, I think it's superior to a lot of other tales of innocence and experience in literature because James isn't doing uh, the simplistic cliche thing that you often see uh, in contemporary lit where you end up, you know, the character ends up looking at experience as this sort of superior form of existence and innocence is this tragically lacking state that you had to transcend in order to become this superior being. And on the contrary, James sees Isabel's innocence as fundamentally and inherently good. And the fact that she has to lose it to function in this world, um, for him, that's the tragedy. Um, and he explores the folds of the irony better than anyone uh, because he shows 
how Isabel wouldn't have had to lose her innocence if she had had that one thing lacking in her character, which is good judgment. But in order to obtain her good judgment, um, it required the error of judgment that resulted in the loss of her innocence. So, so it is this sort of Mobius strip, right? Mm. Um, where you can't really see how you can get one without the other. And yet the loss is a real loss. It's not this, you know, sort of happy fault. There is, you know, real tragedy there. Wow. Well, and I think about this whole idea of innocence Mm -hmm. in general, and innocence and prudence are two things that do not seem to get a whole lot of traction. Right, right. In our current culture. Right. Prudence has this sort of bad name because it sounds like prudery and everyone knows you shouldn't like prudery. So they don't like prudence either. They don't even know what it is, but they don't like it because the word sounds bad. (laughs) Right. But I mean, that's exactly what she was lacking was this kind of form of judgment. And I just find it so interesting that someone can write a social commentary 140 years ahead of its time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And Henry James is doing it all the time. Well, and maybe that's the thing about it is that we just find new ways to damage innocence. We find new ways to ignore virtue. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good way of putting it. I think that's well said. Correct me if I'm wrong, but basically what you're saying is that this book gave you insight into virtue and values at that age. I I think so. I think it helps me to see that you know, what everyone was sort of selling as the, you know, the narrative arc or trajectory of a young life wasn't necessarily the whole story, right? And didn't necessarily have to be (laughs) the way that things played out. You could possibly benefit from others' experience. Also make bold choices, which is something that Isabel wants to do, but it might end up looking more conventional to people than, you know, the, the sort of narrative of striking out on your own and doing your own thing, which itself has become a cliche. Right? Um, you know, this this sort of sense that I self-define and I do what what I see fit. You know, there's nothing more mimetic than that. <laughs> there's, you know, nothing more, um, you, you know, this sort of cookie cutter, right, than the, you know, than the sense that I invent myself. Because if you have, you know, a bunch of people all inventing themselves together at the same time, they're going to necessarily, um, you know, Rene Girard talked about this and to see a desire in the novel, of course, people who have this this common aspiration are going to be looking at each other's paper all the time to see well, what mm-hmm. are you doing to invent yourself and maybe I should do something that looks like that. Exactly. <laughs> and that's what that's the, the image that came to my mind is I, I don't know why I do this, but I, I do get on social media because honestly, because I'm trying to let people know about the podcast. I think we cover yeah. some really fantastic books and ideas and I want people to know about it. But I get myself pulled into this rabbit hole mm-hmm. of watching videos of people applying makeup. <laughs> now, I I have like, I, I really find beauty in general as this really fascinating concept, beauty and fashion and things like that. I, I actually really enjoy those things, but the way that I enjoy them isn't necessarily by consuming them, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So like, I don't wear makeup. It's not because I think makeup is bad, but the thing that kind of frustrates me about cosmetic use is exactly what you're saying, that we're all going to make ourselves our best person by making ourselves look like everybody else. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. all of these people are applying contouring. Right. 
they're applying contouring makeup to make their facial features look like every other woman who is wearing contouring makeup. That they're <laughs> they're remaking themselves in each other's image instead of in their own image or in God's image of them. Like I said, it's not because I think cosmetics are wrong, but I, I think it's just a, a mirror of what you're saying or the whole idea on social media of a reel that you're repurposing unoriginal content mm -hmm. and that you want to use that we're, we're creating a society where you want to use and do what everyone else is doing. And we call that freedom. Right. Right. Whereas you encountered freedom in reading this book. Right. Where I think, you know, I, I, I love where you're going with this because when it comes to the appearance thing, this is particularly something that right women have a tendency to get sucked into. Um, and I, I get it if you're in a profession or in a career where your appearance is part of, you know, like your self-presentation is sort of part of how you practice your art. Like if you're an actress, right, and you, you know, you're trying to embody a certain character, right? But for, for just me, who's a human being who spends most of my day behind a screen, <laughs> behind a keyboard, like why should I even want to look like I looked 10 or 15 years ago? Like who cares? I'm not the person I was 10 or 15 years ago, right? And to pretend that I was would be, you know, a false pretense, right? I think one reason we get snared in this, though, is because we're afraid to be the person that God sees us as, um, because we think that that's not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> like we sort of are in the habit of thinking, right, that whatever I really am, it's worse and I have to cover it up <laughs> where, you know, what I really am is actually, you know, originally what God created me to be, which is something, something good, right? And there are a variety of ways that I I mess that up on a regular basis, but um, to show up authentically, right, is something that, uh, you know, is very scary. And I think not particularly safe in the culture that we live in, right? Not particularly an, an appealing prospect because there is just this sort of toxic sludge out there of people who just want to sling mud at everyone, you know, and you can't really show up as you are um, because there, there's just this sort of increasingly narrow range of ways that you can show up and be accepted, even if as we have sort of the cultural fiction or illusion of many ways that are acceptable and many paths that are open. You know, it continues to be this restricted thing. It's just that the, the window of what you're restricted to has shifted. Right? Mm. <laughs> um, and that's all, all of that is a very complicated way of saying that, you know, I think it does tend to all of that does tend to drive people away from, you know, from authentic freedom and from authentically being who God created them to be, um, because they're trying to fit into these uh, these narrow windows that garner attention, right, or, or garner engagement of one form or another, right, uh, on these sorts of very narrow platforms that we're taught are the only way that you can put yourself out there, or the only way that you can go go out there and show up, and uh, and it's all on these very superficial levels. Just like, you know, are you doing all the right things? Are yeah. you checking all the right boxes? Yeah. And that's all putting on, that's putting on identity and it might not actually be yours. It is so scary because in order to reveal like our innermost person, in order to show, to show and be known as God has made us, we almost have to, rather than cover up, we have to crack open. Yeah. And that's scary. That's, That's so terrifying. 
It, it is, but I think it's the way that you become a free person. And I think a free person is a saint. And not to necessarily say that, uh, right, that, that just anything that comes out of your, your mouth or your head or your heart is necessarily holy. Um, no, that's not the impression I want to give at all. Um, uh, but a saint is a free person. I should flip it, right? present it the other way around and then yeah. it makes sense, right? Well, and that's kind of funny that you mentioned that because we're recording this on the Feast of St. Joan of Arc. And I'm wearing my Joan of Arc shirt and you can't see it, but, and it's from Ranger Up, which is like veteran wear and not all of their (laughs) things are appropriate, but I really like this shirt (laughs) and that has Joan of Arc on the front and on the back, it says, she who is brave is free. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's beautiful. And just thinking about that, that we see what, what makes us not want to crack ourselves open and pour Christ into the world is fear. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, what's the opposite of fear? That it's it can be bravery or it can be love, because perfect love casts out fear. Yeah, and no. so love takes courage. Yeah, no, that's right. But the fruit of that, like you said, the the fruit of that is sanctity, not just for mm-hmm. ourselves, but that you're actually you're empowering those around you to be free as well. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. If if you can do it, then others know that they can do it. Mm-hmm. I think the hard part is knowing that their way of doing it might not look like yours and that's okay too. Isn't that the thing? Isn't that the thing? And that's one of the reasons I'm doing this show is because, you know, we talk about story and I'm thinking about what you were talking about with um, Henry's short story uh, mm-hmm. about the tabloid and, oh, we want to get your story and get it out there. But are we really getting people's real stories out there? I think part of the reason our culture is so divided is because we don't know each other's stories. Yeah. No, we, we want to shoehorn things into these convenient narrative tropes and frames that exist. That's a real temptation. And, and it's just a commodification that you, the only parts of your story that matter are those things that we can monetize. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> that that is so rough and I think it just eats a lot of people alive. It's so discouraging. Yeah. But I think there's a flip side in that those things aren't any less real. And I think, you know, creating spaces for those stories to exist, right? It is an important part of the work of community. Right. Well, and speaking of creating spaces, I feel like your novel The title is As Earth Without Water. Which is not particularly snappy, but is a phrase from one of the Psalms. And I continually forget which, which Psalm it is. So I have to crack open my own novel to tell you. <laughs> it's, uh, it's Psalm 142. And the thing is, is this, this book is all about this whole idea of creating and creative space leading to authenticity. This book takes place in metropolitan art circles. And so some of their lives might be a little bit colorful for some listeners, and some of their language might be a little bit colorful for some listeners. But I think that you're engaging in this world where people are striving for our authenticity through their art, and yet the fear of true and pure existence in their nature is hobbled by exactly this, like the cultural norms within their society and butting up against that. And so why don't you tell me a little bit of like this creative space in this community that you wrote about in your book? 
Sure. And I have to admit that a lot of it was through research. I read a lot of books about the art world to try to get my head around what it might be like to try to do this kind of very visual, very concrete, very physical work. And at the same time, have a lot of the reception of it depend on self-presentation very much, I think, in the way that, uh, you know, an actor and actress's work might depend or a, a musician's work might depend on how they sort of present themselves within the social circles that are connected to those um, to those pursuits, which is not something I have zero experience of. I have, I have some experience um, directly of that, but not at the levels that these characters are operating. So when the novel opens, my male lead, Dylan Fielding, is having an art show in Chicago and is showing this painting of the um, woman that he used to love, Angela Solomon, and the painting is a nude, and she has always hated the painting and has asked him not to show it, and he shows it anyway because it's if it's successful, it gets attention. It's part of this, you know, updating or revision of Renaissance uh, style that he's uh, sort of marketed himself as being the proponent or the the face of. Right? She's right away um, embroiled in this this you know, this question of whether her own creative practice has been blocked by the fact that her self-presentation is, you know, always necessarily perceived in terms of the way that he has presented her to those same circles, right? She's also a painter. She also does kind of innovative things with, with the visual, but her work seems to always be received in terms of his and as though she's sort of secondary inferior, right? This dynamic between them um, carries through even to you know a much later period in the novel where he's, you know, he has moved to a monastery. He has had a conversion of heart. Um, he's He's still doing art, but he's doing it very differently. And he's trying to um, understand what it means to still be a believer uh, and still to create in this, you know, in this space where something terrible has happened to him. And, you know, she's still struggling to move past the way that she used to see him as this sort of exploitative person who's willing to make use of appearances and make use of other people to get to where he wants to be, you know, where he's now in the position of having been made use of and exploited, you know, and his own sort of interior life is, uh, is floundering, is struggling, right? And she's, you know, she's sort of tasked with helping him pick up the pieces. Um, and until she can come to a place where she can see him differently, she's not really able to do that. And this is something we were talking about before we hit record of yeah, you know, yeah. what does it mean to love? Right. What does it mean to love someone as they are? Right. You have to be able to see them as they are. And vision is by no means this uncomplicated thing. You have to be able to see through the appearance to the reality. And something that just struck me about that is you, I, I just love the theme of seeing people. This is something I've gone over again and again. And it's one of the things I loved about Rhonda Ortiz's book is that it's about seeing people. Mm-hmm. But the thing that strikes me about this whole idea of seeing people is to rightly see others, we need to be able to rightly see ourselves. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that that can be a scary prospect because I think part of the reason that we judge others is because we're still looking for this acceptance. We're still looking for this positive feedback. And we feel if we don't toe that line and we if we feel like if we don't hold others mm-hmm. to toe that line, mm-hmm. that we will be unacceptable by proxy. Because we're not playing into the literal social constraints of the culture. Right. 
Right, right. Yeah, we're sort of playing these roles. And this is something that Rene Girard talks about in To See a Desire in the novel, too. The dynamic that I use to describe, uh, the, the dynamic that they're stuck in, right, where they're sort of circling around each other like these lovers in Dante, right, um, is double mediation, where they're trying to sort of get hold of something that they think the other is or they think the other has, and they're trying to get hold of it by means of this romantic or sexual possession, and that's not ever going to work, right? <laughs> you know, that, that it's always going to be caught up in envy and desire and, you know, self-blame and blame of the other, you know, I'm not like this because you're like that, right? Um, you sort of keeps them trapped in these in these roles and right um how it, i guess one of the the questions the narrative addresses is how do you break free from a dynamic like that how do you get out of this um, you, you know trap where you've you know you sort of pinned all of your um your existential angst on some other person some other poor person who's your model obstacle right you're not free until you can let them go. And they're not free <laughs> until you can let them go. Um, they're not free until they can let you go. Um, right. It's all getting very far afield from the plot, but I think it's something, <laughs> something that does happen, right, on a pretty regular basis. And I think, you you know, especially in immature relationships, you know, it's one reason why early or, you know, early relationships very often fail is this, uh, this sort of tendency to project this quality onto somebody else. Right. And to think that I can only I, I can only be this person if I can be with this other person. Right. Um, where you have to first be who you are in yourself. And that's not really possible without exploring your relation to God. One thing that really struck me about the book mm -hmm. is the encounter with silence. Right. And how that seems to really change both of your main characters at different points in the book, that the simplicity and silence really seems to start allowing them to find their identity. Yeah, for sure. For both of them. I think that's that's fair to say. The thing I found compelling about that is that even these two very secular characters at the beginning of the story mm -hmm. long for that, that they, they don't even see the longing. Right. In themselves, they don't see it. And in a way, I guess you could frame this novel as being among um, what scholar John McClure would call a post-secular narrative, which is, you know, this this mode of story that has characters who are involved in sort of getting past this limitation of the self where you only see the material reality affecting the self, you know, the only the economic, only the, you know, the practical, only the pragmatic, and only the relational, like Madame Merrill with her, you know, only existing in relation to others you begin to see the characters as also in relation to this vertical dimension of reality. And you begin to see that those horizontal concerns are real and important. They don't go away or stop existing, but you begin to see that they have to have their value established in relation to something else in order to be understood. That it's almost without act adding that extra dimension that they have no context. Right, right. And you don't know how to establish the value of anything until you can see it in relation to the absolute. This is something that Flannery O'Connor says, um, you know, that those who have no absolute are always you know, raising the relative to the level of the absolute. They can't let it remain merely relative because there, there is, you know, there, there's that vacuum right? and things keep getting pulled up into that vacuum. I'm, I have left O'Connor and I'm sort of glossing on her now, but um, 
I guess another way to say it is Chesterton's observation about how um, if you don't have a belief in God, if you don't have belief in the divine, you'll start having a belief in literally anything. You know, you you'll have to put something in that place because we're, we're built that way. We have to have something in that place, or we. We, we don't hold together, right? David Foster Wallace says it as everybody worships, all we get to choose is what? That if we don't have an absolute, we'll fall into an idolatry. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think uh, Rene Jard's characteristic insight is that men are gods for each other if they don't have a god. And that's definitely the case with, with these two main characters. And at least in the first half of the novel, they've sort of made each other into into gods right um one of them says to you know a, a friend says to one of them at one point you know oh right he apotheosized you right that's what he did wrong to you right you know and she's being sarcastic she's saying well this was a great thing for you this painting that he made of you and how he presented it right you should have been able to sort of capitalize on this right this is this was your um this was your platform right you missed it right and here we're talking about platform again. We're talking right. about, you know, monetization, explo- exploitative relationship. The thing that strikes me about that whole idea, I first encountered that idea of turning a lover into an idol in Fulton Sheen's book, Three to Get Married. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he said that in any romantic relationship, if and it gets back to your thing of, you know, immature relationship. In a romantic relationship, if a couple doesn't have God as the center, that they will idolize one another. And the thing is, is none of us is worthy of worship. We can't be. And so then it leads to crack ups in the relationship because when that other human being in the relationship invariably fails to act godlike, imagine Mm -hmm. that, um, (laughs) then we're angry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're angry at them for failing to be a worthy God. Right. We're expecting something of them that no human can fulfill. And I I think that that just points to one of the central problems with relationship in our world is that, and maybe that's what's even driving some of these external standards of beauty and things like that is because since we're idolizing one another, we're expecting some form of external perfection. Right. And I think that really tremendously sad thing is that people think that they have to perform that to be loved or to be lovable. Well, and the thing is, is I think that this idolatry also makes shallower relationship because I think intuitively we know if we crack into the interior of that other person that we will find imperfection, but we're afraid of finding the imperfections because then our whole belief system falls on its face. Right. Right, right. It is almost like losing a faith, right? It is. It is almost like a conversion, and I think um, this, you know, underlies why, right? The destabilization of their relationship is for both of them this sort of point of, you know, of needing to search for something else, right? Um, because yeah. they realize, right, what I was looking for here, right, can't be found here. Well, and I, I just thought it was a really beautiful story, and the. The takeaway from it for me is as I'm reading this and, you know, that my life has by no means been perfect or always virtuous at all, like probably even including today. Um, (laughs) Let's be honest, right? But here's the thing is I was like, okay, why would we call this book good and true and beautiful? Why would we call this a Christian work and things like that? And I realized, okay, these people in the art scene or people who are living a life that we don't necessarily envision 
and not like the whole art scene, but like our our notions of what that lifestyle would include. Let's mm-hmm. put it that way. Mm-hmm. Is we're like, okay, well, what should we want? Well, we should desire for those people that they know God, love God, and serve God. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, well, how do we how do we go about that? And it just dawned on me. I'm like, well, how we get them to know love and serve God is we need to know love and serve them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I thought that your book was really powerful in just very much humanizing people that might be perceived as being outside of our culture, uh, as Christians, outside of Christian culture. Right. There's this sort of perceived tension, right, between, I guess, church cultures and creative cultures. And there's been a lot of uh, a lot of ink spilled about this. And I edit a magazine called Dappled Things, uh, which exists precisely at this intersection between uh you know, artistic and literary culture and and church culture, right? And I think part of the perceived tension, right, is this belief that there's this sort of list of rules and this negative judgment. And it's not that the rules aren't real or that they don't exist, but I think it's the negative judgment. A lot of people sort of react against environments that they maybe grew up in or experienced at some point that were highly judgmental, right? And I, I, I speak wherever I know because I have encountered some of those environments that, you know, do sort of draw this this bright line between we can associate with you versus we can't associate with you, right? Which is, um, you know, a hard thing and really sad to see. Uh, but I, you know, I don't think that there's any necessity um, for for that kind of separation um, in terms of, I guess, gatekeeping when it comes to you know, just trying to have relationships with people who, you know, who see the world differently, right? Or who, right, might not be living the way that you want to live, but you still want to know them and love them and try to serve them, as you say, as best you can. I am also just, uh, you know, in this connection, obsessed with um, what Jacques Maritain talks about, which is the distinction between the virtue of art and the other virtues. Um, and he does think, um, you know, and this is basically straight from Aquinas, that art is a virtue. It's the appetite straightly tending to the perfection of the work. Um, it's it, right, as you keep, you know, using the phrase, you, you know, serve the work, right? It, it is precisely that by which you learn to serve the work. And you, you know, you learn to serve your work, though, I think, ultimately, in service to the person who's going to receive it. Mm. And in service to the person who's going to be hopefully raised to some kind of encounter with the truth by your um, by your service of the work. And I think we often lose sight of how selfless that can be. We have this sort of false perception built up that an engagement in the arts is this sort of self-pursuit or like, you know, finding yourself of this thing of, you know, of <laughs> legend and phrase, right? Um, you know, or, you know, <laughs> someone very well intentioned who who meant the best for me in the world, but once you know when I was a very young mother and trying to write and find time, and you know I thought this is so frustrating, I'll never be able to do this. She said to me, "Well, maybe you're not meant to do it. Maybe you just have a self fulfillment project, and you just need to put that aside and realize that your family needs you now, and you don't need to have a self fulfillment project right now." And I, like you know, not to say that I didn't think that this person had you know the best in mind. I know that I know that they did, but 
you know, it's anything but a self-fulfillment project when you're engaged in a creative pursuit because you are seeking the truth um, if you're doing it in a spirit of goodwill, right? And it doesn't give you the other virtues. It doesn't necessarily bring harmony to your life all by itself. You have to find that harmony somewhere outside the practice of art or the practice itself is going to be disturbed, Um, which again happens, right, to both characters at various points. Um, It's inviting you to put yourself on the line in ways that... um, you know, you have to find some way to put yourself on the line in life like this, I think, or you're just going to end up living a shallow life, right? That, that is about um, making the appearances, right? Rather than making the realities. And I think if you're called to it, um, you know, that if you try to find ways not to do it or reasons to run from doing it, you are kind of running from yourself, right? Uh, anyway, <laughs> again, that's all a very long way of saying even though practicing art doesn't necessarily give you the other virtues in itself, it sort of brings you to a place where you have to face what it means to have them or to not have them. Well, and I think just recognizing what your gifts are, what your creative gifts are, and the person who spoke those words to your life, um, they probably have very different gifts than you. Yeah. that There are some people where the hospitality aspects of homemaking is how they pour their life. Out. I am not one of those people. Uh, It is very abundantly clear if you looked at my house that I am not one of those people. But if you if you tell someone like that, oh, just leave your house messy. Everything's fine. That's crushing to their soul because they know what their gift is. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. And I think it is a way that um, self-expression comes about for people, right? Um, Again, we're talking about something where this idea of beauty and this idea of appearance and this idea of who a woman is and should be, right, all come together, right? Um, I I guess I have the personal misfortune that I can't work in a mess. (laughs) I have to have have things tidier. Like my brain starts to fall into pieces. (laughs) You know, and I'm, you know, my kids are the same, the last thing, <laughs> you know, they really need order or the behavior starts to deteriorate, right? Um, so I have had to find a balance between, um, you know, keeping the environment and such, you know, it's sort of at a baseline, right? <laughs> but also being able to find the time, you know, if you're going to speak into the life of someone whose life looks very different from you, you have to be willing to sort of dig in there and imagine what that's like. I think empathy gets a bad name right now. There's, it's, you know, very fashionable to say things about empathy, like talk about the limitations of it and how it can sort of help us self-deceive and to think we're doing something for people when, you know, we're really just imagining them badly or, you know, sort of giving ourselves a sense of, you know, being a good person because we even bother to imagine, right, somebody else's life. Some of those things have some validity, but I think empathy approached rightly still has this worthwhile function of making us precisely less sure of our own conclusions and more aware of our need to gather more information and to try to practice patience and prudence in the way we approach other people. So you mean we need to grow on more than one virtue? Yeah, it's really tricky. (laughs) I thought I could get away with like a short list. <laughs> they all sort of like everything's everything. Everything is connected to everything. It all pulls on each other, right? You, you pull one thread and everything else comes along with it. <laughs> along with some knots, usually. I, right. I immediately envision like when your skein of yarn gets cattywampus. 
Right. <laughs> and then to get this knot out, you actually need to pull over here. And you right. need to make it go through loops and things like that, that it, it is not straightforward. It is not straightforward. And, and I think, you know, we notice this right precisely when we're most sure we have the answer. Um, and to come back to the novel, a lot of the second half, the action is driven by a particular character who's very sure she knows the exact situation and she knows exactly what to do about it. She is wildly wrong in her assumptions and in her prejudgments, and she creates a lot of unnecessary chaos and strain when everyone around by trying to take charge of a situation that she doesn't even really understand. Uh, and if I were to sit here and tell you that I had never been in a parallel situation myself, I would be lying, right? Not that I've ever charged into a monastery and tried to like liberate someone I thought was being held there against their will. But I have definitely had the experience of being very sure that I had the solution and being very wrong. Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> What would you want your audience to take away from this book? I, you know, I hope that um, people will come to it and just have an experience of, right, something beautiful and a good story. Because I think if fiction doesn't start by telling a good story, it can't go on to do very much else. But I think another part of what a well-observed story can do is to help people feel less alone, um, maybe to help them articulate what they've experienced and generate discussions that lead to clearer mutual understanding. And I'm really happy to say that I've had individual readers reach out to me to say that such and such a character helped them to see someone differently or help them to have more compassion on someone else or on themselves. And that to me feels like the biggest win <laughs> that I could have. Because <laughs> so. that's the part that changes the world. That's the hope. That's the hope. Yeah. Yeah. What are you working on right now? So I have a, a short story collection coming together. Um, I'm, as I think you said in the intro, in the uh, Master of Fine Arts program at the University of St. Thomas for Creative Writing in Fiction. So what I'm working on there as my capstone is a short story collection that I'm calling Fragile Objects. Uh, and several of the stories are still under revision, um, thanks to my wonderful classmates and professor, Dr. Joshua Wren. You know, I'm hoping that uh, that will see the light of day within the next few years. I don't have a publisher yet. I'm still looking around. I'm still looking for representations. So, you know, that that's happening. I've also started a second novel, but it is the kind of mess that only a beginning novel can be in its incipient stages. Um, so I'm not ready to say a whole lot about that, except that it exists. <laughs> I, I have a couple of those. I have a couple of those. So I know yeah. the mess you're talking about. And then you go back and you're reading it and you're like, Oh, what was I thinking? <laughs> uh -huh. I Why is this so bad? <laughs> or at least my reading, my writing, I can say that. George Saunders talks about this. He says, this is just a universal experience. And that if you learn to, you know, if you learn to be a writer, eventually you learn to have that experience and go, okay, I am not happy with this. It needs to be better. How can it be better? And then you rewrite it <laughs> as many times as necessary. <laughs> yeah. Maybe one day, maybe one day. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I think it's just one step at a time for me. I wanted to ask you, I was reading that you um, had been a writer in residence for Widespread Books. Tell me what a writer in residence is and what you were doing. 
So this was 2020. So the residency wasn't a residency. <laughs> the residency took place in my house. <laughs> but uh, the Wiseville program was absolutely wonderful. Um, and I think going forward, they're going to fold this into the MFA program somehow as a sort of like a, a grant or something extra that you can apply for as a student, right? Um, and I'm not entirely clear on all the ins and outs of that yet, because I think it's still in the works. The way that it worked for me and for the person who came after me, who's Sally Thomas, whose debut novel is coming out, I believe this year is called Works of Mercy, and I for one can't wait to see it. I you know, spoke with um, Joshua Ren, who's also the editor of Wisebud. We had conversations over the course of the year. There was a you know a small stipend involved and several books that we discussed together that Wisebud sent me. Um you know, on the art of fiction and, you know, several novels uh, that we discussed together um, that would have a bearing on the development of a text like this. Henry James, Roderick Hudson was one of those because it's actually Henry James' debut novel. And it's about, um, it's a Kunstler roman as well. It's one of these stories about the development of the artist, right? Um, but he sort of shows how, I, I just love Roderick Hudson, sorry, I'm going to go on a tangent because, um, you know, it's a story that shows how, or it's sort of self-indulgence, has no place in, in the life of the artist um, because it'll destroy your art um, as well. You know, another example of a you know novel we discussed was Balzac's Lost Illusions. We talked about Zola's The Masterpiece, um, right? This whole tradition of depicting art and artists in fiction, right? So this was um, just a wonderful experience in a lot of ways. And then you know the the core of it was that we set aside two weeks to discuss the manuscript. Um, Joshua gave me notes on revision, and I revised like mad while my <laughs> husband and mother-in-law watched the kids, um, which again, this was during quarantine. So we were um, you know, pretty much confined to the house. So one week I was here and for the larger part of the other week, I got to go away to an Airbnb all by myself, you know, no contact pickups and <laughs> the whole nine yards. Right. But, you know, it was wonderful in that it proved to me that you can do more than you think you can with the time that you have and that you can create space to create in what seem like impossible conditions. Joshua is just such an incredibly gifted editor that, uh, you know, and he saw what I wanted to do with the, with the manuscript um, and was able to help bring that about and, you know, in a really marvelous way. So I'm just incredibly grateful to Wiseblood for all of the support. They've been an amazing publisher. I'm just so fascinated watching all these different people do what seemed like random little actions, little steps here and there, but it's all guiding towards something. Mm -hmm. And now we're going to have some random action in your life. How does that sound? <laughs> we're going to have the rando round. Love it. Let's go. <laughs> are, are you prepared for my 100 over-caffeinated questions? Amazing. Can't wait. Okay, I've, only, I've only had one pot of coffee today. So, you know. <laughs> So the question is, do you want pink with sparkles mm. or do you want tie-dye dice? Ooh, let's go with the tie-dye. I like blue. All right. And I've decided I made a deal with myself. When I hit a thousand downloads for the show, mm. I'm going to get myself one new set of dice. Fun. So that's very exciting <laughs> in my life. <laughs> we have 86 rolling high today. Hi, Rolla. <laughs> What do you wish people understood about writing? Ooh, now I get to talk about the myth of the art monster. All right. 
I really wish that everybody understood not just about writing, but about any kind of immersive endeavor that you can't do it exclusively forever. You have to have a human life, right? Um, And it might be this beautiful ideal that you go off to graduate school and you spend 15 or 16 hours a day absorbed every day and, you know, in your sole pursuit. And that's amazing. Um, But that's not going to be the picture of your entire life. You have to have balance and you have to have structure um, and you have to have guardrails in place so that you don't burn yourself out. Because I don't know about you, but I'm one of the kind of obsessive people who would just like drive my chosen pursuit right through my life like a pile driver and destroy everything. (laughs) Um, And you really, 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 you know, the more if you have that temperament, you need structure in place so that you don't do that to yourself. Um, You know, you'll actually create more and better with those limitations than you would without them. That's profound, really. (laughs) Yeah, I know not everyone would agree, but they can come and fight me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you look like a heavyweight boxer here, so I'm a little worried. (laughs) Now we've got threats of violence on the show, threats of violence, people. (laughs) I think we're just going to roll the dice and simmer down, okay, Katie? (laughs) We've I'm got- like the least confrontational person on this. <laughs> I'm the army veteran. I am the one that is supposed to use violence as a tool. Come on. So my next question is, what are you the most proud of? I, yeah, that that's actually, you know, we're like socialized not to be proud of things, right? Um, I'm tremendously proud of my kids. Um, I'm proud of... I am proud of my writing, you know, and I'm proud of the fact that I find a way to do both. I think more people need um, models for that. I think that needs to be obvious that it's something you can do that's very much connected to what we were just talking about, right? Um, you, you know, you can have a balanced human life and a creative pursuit. I'm going to just backtrack and say, right, that's a gift, right? So being proud of it is not just, you know, it's not like it's something I did all by myself, but, uh, you know, and certainly it's dependent on the gift work of people who have been willing to support me and not, you know, and not everyone can count on that. So it's something that I'm incredibly grateful for too. But also it's something that I've been willing to stick my neck out for a bit. Um, which again, it's the above least confrontational person ever. So, um, you know, I, I guess I'm proud of myself for standing up for that as a value. Awesome. Awesome. 55. We rolled really high today. <laughs> what unique skills do you have that led to your success? Oh, um, I don't know if I'm ready to call it a success yet. I have a lot more that I want to do. (laughs) It has not been done. Um, I'm very stubborn. (laughs) That's a gift too. Um, One thing about me is that I'm very stubborn. (laughs) I don't back down easily. And if you tell me I can't do something, I'm going to say, watch me. (laughs) But not confrontationally. (laughs) Not confrontationally. (laughs) So you'll just go passive aggressive instead. It's a tool. I'm not proud of that. <laughs> Unfortunately. That was the next question. What are you not proud of? No. Right. Actually, I think I'm ready for our last question that I give to all of my guests. And that is, what gives you hope right now? 
Mm. I think community relationships, knowing that there are other people out there who want similar or the same things. There are plenty of people who even in this completely polarized and destructive landscape want it not to be that way and really want the good things that God has for each and every one of us who want those to come about in the world. Not being alone in that, um, that that's a huge gift. Um, that's something I'm, I'm grateful for and it gives me hope every day. All I can say to that is amen. Amen. I've really enjoyed our time together, Katie, and I'm so grateful that you joined me on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a delight. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, click on the follow button for more tales every other Tuesday. And in the meantime, read stories that matter because you are living one.